<clears throat> so last time we were together, we considered the bread that we use. And to summarize what I said, um, the bread itself uh, symbolizes, um, well, let me first say, not that it doesn't matter what bread we don't use, whether unleavened or leavened, but there's more symbolism in leavened bread than unleavened bread. Leavened bread highlights and pictures for us visibly more of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, rather than an over and above um, unleavened bread. Now, we want to consider the other element that is associated with the Lord's Supper, and that is the cup. Specifically, what type of drink do we use at the Lord's Supper? Now, we're going to answer that question next week, but I'm already going to presuppose that the the proper drink for the supper is wine. The proper drink for the supper is wine. Before we consider that, though, um, all of us have a certain background. All of us have a certain tradition. All of us have certain presuppositions that we already come to the table with. Now, traditions are not bad. Presuppositions are not bad, um, per se. Um, but if your tradition and your presupposition is not at least a knowledgeable one, and rather it's one of opinion, and this is what I've always thought, and you hold on to that thought as if there's as if every other or any other thought is wrong, then you need to question whether what you believe is actually true or not. All of us, when a certain topic is brought up in our minds, already know the ins and outs of what a of what that doctrine is. So, for instance. Uh, Pastor Antonio, when he before he began the, doing his study on Revelation, once you hear Revelation, you already have a tradition, already have an idea of what Revelation is about. It's about, I don't know, either left behind stuff, or you're coming from I don't know, a, a post millennial type of slant, and that's what you were taught as a as a, as a young one. Um, or you always heard that this is how the end is going to be, or at least the the the, the nature of the end. So we're all coming to uh, doctrine already with some sort of background that's informing us what the doctrine says and what the doctrine is about. So if I was to tell you that... We are switching from grape juice to wine. Automatically, your idea of alcohol is going to come into the picture of what you think concerning alcohol. So why then are we switching from grape juice to alcohol, specifically grape juice to wine? Why such the switch? Let me give you a few reasons why not. Why the, uh, the elders are um, not switching from grape juice to wine. Number one, not because the elders love alcohol and we want you to like it too. 
That's not the reason why we're switching from grape juice to alcohol or to wine, because the elders are wine aficionados, and we want you to become wine aficionados yourself. Um, I don't like the taste of wine. I don't care for wine. Pastor Antonio hates everything alcohol, even hand sanitizer. That's a joke, but but he doesn't like the taste of alcohol. Um, not that I'm opposed to the taste of alcohol, I just don't drink it. So we don't have to think that the elders wanted to drink wine because they like wine. That's not a reason. Number two, not because we want to be the cool kids on the block. Because we want to be the cool kids on the block, meaning we have churches all around us, and the predominant element of the cup is grape juice, but we're going to go against the grain. And we're going to drink wine. We're going to show that we are distinct from you. Distinct from you churches that think grape juice is the element. No, no, no. We're going to be cool and we're going to drink wine. Um, that's not a reason why we're switching from wine, grape juice to wine. Number three, not because we want to be as reformed as possible. Not because we want to be as reformed as possible. If you have Facebook, if you have Twitter or whatever, usually you come across these reformed men that in their background, they have a picture of all the different beers they like to drink. Now, I really don't care. You can post whatever you want. But it seems like when, it seems like when a reformed man, maybe even woman, learns about Christian liberty, they begin to show forth how much Christian liberty that they have and that they, and that they can abide by. I can drink this much and still be under Christian liberty. Um, Yes, I want to be as reformed as I can, but I also want to be as biblical as I can. Um, also understanding that there is another tradition out there. There is, the, there is the medieval tradition. There is the patristic church father tradition. That, yes, I believe that the, 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 the reform take um, a lot of, right? Um, but I really don't care about on our... Uh, Reformation Bible Church Facebook page putting a bottle of wine as our background and saying, hey, look at us. Look how reformed we are. We fit in with the confessional tradition. Number four, because we want to spice things up within the church. Because we want to spice things up within the church. We're doing one thing. Okay, let's grab the attention of all the members. We're moving from grape juice to wine. That's really going to get people going. You know, every doctrinal or not every doctrinal opinion or new idea warrants a change. Not every doctrinal uh, uh, opinion and new idea that the elders have warrant a change, at least not at that very moment. There's many things that I want to teach on. There's many things that Pastor Antonio wants to teach on. There's many things that I'm studying in hope of teaching on or maybe being swayed to that opinion to teach on, doesn't mean that I need to bring it to the table yet. <clears throat> so not every new idea. It's not as if, you know, I was reading something and then I saw that the element of the cup should be wine, and then, you know, I, I, I dreamt this up and put it together, and then here it is. 
Now, this has actually been a long, very long process. Number five, and this is actually huge. Not because drinking alcohol is permissible. Not because drinking alcohol is permissible. Simply put, the Bible says you can drink alcohol, therefore we're going to drink alcohol. If alcohol, if wine wasn't the element of the Lord's Supper, I wouldn't do it. If God commanded and instituted the Lord's Supper with soda, we would drink soda. If it was orange juice, we would do orange juice. It just so happens, though, that when Christ instituted the Supper, it was wine. So just because we have Christian liberty doesn't mean that we go ahead and drink alcohol just for the sake of Christian liberty. No. Then what's the reason? For the sake of what the word of God says. That's the reason. Not because the main reason why um, we are switching from grape juice to wine at the supper is because we want to be as true to what the Lord says and has commanded us to do in a worship service. That's what we do. That's the reason why. Because we want to be as true to what God has commanded us to do at and during a worship service. If we care about the preached word and the content of the preached word, if we care about the type of songs that we sing, if we care about our attention span during a worship service, then we should care about the elements of the Lord's Supper. And that is why. Because that is what the, this is what the Bible says, simply put. So let's consider the doctrine of wine. The doctrine of wine. First, let's answer the question, can a Christian drink alcohol? Can a Christian drink alcohol? Well, the answer is simply yes. The answer is simply yes. Many have grown up in a tradition that says all alcohol consumption is evil and sinful. All alcohol consumption, even the slightest bit of it, is evil and sinful. And as much as I can sympathize with that position, it's simply not biblical. As much as you're trying to be as pastoral to your friend or even to yourself, it's not a biblical position. In fact, that position is bordering on the line of sinful. I'll give you the reason why in a minute. No matter how bad alcohol has damaged your life, no matter if your family has had a history of alcoholics and you've seen firsthand of what alcohol, rather the abuse of alcohol, can do to your family, no matter how much you dislike the taste of alcohol or even don't like how people act when they're uh, abusing alcohol, to say drinking alcohol is sinful, drinking alcohol is sinful, is flat out wrong. It's not biblical. <clears throat> we cannot, saints, make a one-size-fits-all opinion when it comes to doctrine. What I mean by that is this. Consider this, this, the, this argument. Scripture condemns drunkenness, gluttony, and infidelity. Drinking alcohol can lead to drunkenness. Enjoying food can lead to gluttony. Enjoying intimate relations can lead to sexual infidelity. 
Therefore, Scripture condemns all alcohol drinking, all food consumption, all sexual activity. Do you see the error in that logic? If something leads you to doing it in a negative way, then God forbids doing it at all. Um, it's funny how we don't take... The, the way we think about alcohol, we don't take it to food. Because many of us, I'm sure, at one point of our lives, even during this, you know, this month, this week, coming up in the future months, we're going to eat until we're stuffed. Borderline gluttonous. The error of that logic. And I'm sorry, saints, for those who grew up in that tradition, the pastors who have, who have binded your conscience to that error. Because that is an error, biblically. No matter how pastoral they're trying to be, that is not caring for your soul. Caring for your soul is giving you the full account of God's word. <clears throat> Those who think that way have taken the negative effects of one thing. If it can lead you to this, they have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. I say, you know what? Just forget it altogether. Alcohol is sinful. Because it may lead you to drunkenness, which is a sin. The Bible nowhere condemns anyone for drinking alcohol. There's not one verse where God condemns those from drinking alcohol. But the Bible condemns those for drinking too much alcohol. Therefore, becoming drunk. I don't know. I mean, I'm not the smartest man in the world. I don't have, you know, uh, the best college education. But drinking something is quite different from drinking something too much. Having a sip of water is very different from having a whole gallon of water until your belly is full. Drinking alcohol is much different than getting drunk on alcohol, simply put. That is the distinction that we must make and you have to hold on to. God's word is crystal clear on this point with regard to drunkenness. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine. Proverbs 21, wine is a mockery, strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Galatians 5.21, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I have warned you before, that those uh, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, pastors, they read that. They say, saints, you cannot drink and you better not have a bottle of alcohol in your cabinet. Because God condemns you. No, that's not what we're supposed to say. But alcohol, though, and drinking too much of it is condemned by God. In fact, let's just consider what St. Paul just said in Galatians 5.21. He says, he, he says, drunkenness, along with other things, will cause you not to inherit the kingdom of God. Notice, when Paul puts drunkenness in the category of those things that will not inherit the kingdom of God, what he means is drinking alcohol is not just a social choice, but drinking alcohol is a theological choice. Drinking alcohol is not merely a social choice, but drinking alcohol is a theological choice. 
In other words, when one chooses to drink alcohol, they are making a theological decision. Will you drink alcohol to the glory of God? Or will you drink alcohol so that you may become drunk and distort the image of God? That is the position. Because how can alcohol, drinking too much alcohol, cause you to not inherit the kingdom of God? If alcohol, drinking too much of it in and of itself, does not have some sort of thing it points you towards. If there's not some sort of symbolism in alcohol. Will you drink in moderation, enjoying and savoring God's gift to mankind? Or will you get drunk and bring destruction to the image of God? So we see that alcohol can have a negative effect on believers and anyone else. Don't get me wrong. Alcohol can do that. It can, if not handled with care, not only destroy one's life, but also, also destroy one's soul. But it's important to remember, saints, that drunkenness, like other sins, is a work of the human heart. Drunkenness, like other sins, is a work of the human heart. That is to say, it is not necessarily the alcohol that gets you into trouble. It is your heart that gets you into trouble. You know, Pastor Antonio talked this morning about St. Anthony, saint of God. (laughs) He is. Monastics, monks, I love them, (laughs) right? Um, I praise God for what they are doing. The problem, though, with the monastics and the monks is in thinking that you are living a holy life by removing yourself from every single thing that might tempt you, you have then locked yourself up in a room with the one thing that you need help with the most, and that is your heart. You remove yourself from sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but you did not check your heart. Essentially, the problem with monastics, although St. Anthony, he's the man. Matthew 15:11 says, "It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds from the, out of the mouth. This defiles the man." In other words, sin, hear this, sin does not inhere in material objects. So when the wine is in a cup, you don't just look at the red and say, look at that sin there. All that is sin, right? That's not what, sin does not inhere in a, in a material object. For God created all things. But sin is a matter of the heart. So again, drunkenness is to be something that is to be uh, forbidden. And I don't want to go into this this sermon with you thinking that you can drink your yourself away. <laughs> I need to make it very clearly that drinking too much alcohol to the point where you are drunk is a sin. And you need to check your heart. But again, saints, that doesn't mean that we can't drink alcohol either. That doesn't mean that we can't drink alcohol at all. Nor does it mean that we can pass judgment on those who choose to drink alcohol. Again, that's probably another something from your tradition. 
that when those are drinking, like you go, you go to a, a restaurant, and if you're still in that, imagine you're in that tradition, you see others drinking, you just look at them in disgust. Like, look at them drinking alcohol. Look how sinful they are. You're passing judgment on something that's not a sin. Drinking alcohol is not a sin. In fact, this is what's spoken of in Romans 14. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not to have quarrels over opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but the one who is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The topic here in Romans 14 is not sin itself, but it's Christian liberty and passing judgment. That's what's happening in Romans 14. Christian liberty within the context of brotherly love. And in this passage, Paul divides Christians into two people groups. He says there is the weaker brother and then there is the stronger brother. The weaker brothers and the stronger brothers. Who's the weaker brother? Paul says, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but the one who is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. The weaker Christian is the one who feels obligated, his conscience is binding him to abstain from meat. Um, there was vegans <laughs> at, during this time, so he only ate vegetables. Now let's consider this with wine then. Paul here commands both parties that they have an obligation toward one another. Both the weaker brother and the stronger brother have an obligation to one another. Can you turn the air down? Tina is freezing, and I am too. My hands are... <laughs> so, they both have an obligation toward one another. The weaker brother and the stronger brother. He who abstains from wine, that's the weaker brother, is not to judge him who drinks wine. The stronger brother. So we tend to think that... I'll get to that right now. And the stronger, he who enjoys wine, is not to hold the weaker brother in contempt in his views. In other words, if the weaker brother condemns the other brother, if the, if the weaker condemns the stronger for drinking something that he, in his conscience, has said, I cannot drink, he is not only condemning that person, but is ultimately condemning God. Because God approves certain behavior under certain circumstances. <clears throat> we tend to think that the weaker brother is the one who can't handle it. He can't handle wine, therefore he's not going to drink wine. And the stronger one is the one who can handle it. But rather, the weaker brother is the one who's passing judgment on the stronger brother. And not only passing judgment... But he's making a law out of it. Saying, if I can't do this, you can't either. If I can't drink wine, if my conscience tells me I can't drink wine, then you can't either. That is the weaker brother. <clears throat> Paul here is aiming at the weaker brother when he says, um, 
or rather one theologian says, Paul makes it clear that the weaker Christian should not rebuke a stronger Christian for something that is not a sin. Drinking alcohol, if I'm in front of you drinking alcohol, you shouldn't be looking at me in disgust and saying, in your mind, you are a sinner. And pass judgment on me just because your conscience tells you that you can't drink alcohol. Simply put. Now, let me say something. This might mess us up, but we'll talk about it next week. <clears throat> there is something in this ver, in this, in this, in this passage that we're going to cover next week, and it's called the liberty of conscience. The liberty of conscience. Meaning that if your conscience tells you, and if it's binding you to, to, to not drink alcohol, then I cannot force you to drink alcohol. It would be wrong for me to put a glass of alcohol in your face. That is the liberty of conscience. <clears throat> no matter um, no matter how I try to convince you that alcohol is uh, a blessing from God, if your conscience tells you I cannot drink alcohol, I cannot go against what you believe. Um, <clears throat> but that is only in a recreational or social context. And we'll get to that next week. But that's, that's to say, nevertheless, we cannot bind others with our opinions. Without careful study, without careful examination, especially something like alcohol. Again, yes, if you have a history of whatever and you've seen what alcohol can do with other, to do to others, you can't Import your tradition and what alcohol has done to you experientially upon others. You just can't do it. Because then you're binding on their liberty of conscience. And Paul says here that you're the weaker brother. And you need to check yourself, essentially. So to summarize what I've said, drinking alcohol is not a sin, but can lead to sin which is drunkenness. So there's a danger in drinking alcohol, but now I want us to consider, in our time left, the flip side, and that is the joy. The joy of alcohol. The joy of alcohol. Specifically, the joy of wine. The joy of wine. If there's anything that the Bible is clear on, it is that wine is a joy to the Christian. Wine is a joy to the Christian and there's two ways to consider wine as a joy or a gift. First, there's the recreational or social way. And then there's the um, theological way. The theological way. <clears throat> we see in Scripture, first and foremost, that wine produces joy or it gladdens the heart. Judges 9.13 but, uh, but the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men... And go hold sway over the trees. Now notice, Judges 9.13 says, Wine cheers not only man, but also cheers God. How can wine cheer God? What is it about wine that cheers God? Well, what's being referred to here is the drink offering that was to be offered to God. Now, what type of drink was to be offered to God? It wasn't soda. It wasn't Welch's grape juice. It wasn't orange juice. It was wine. 
Numbers 15, 7, for the Lord, uh, for the drink offering, you shall offer a third of a hint of wine. And we talked about this in the morning, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Wine offered to the Lord is a pleasing aroma to him. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes 10.19, men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry. Zechariah 10.7, that Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Now, what does it mean for wine to gladden the heart? What does it mean for wine to gladden the heart? Well, I think one of the ways, I'll, I'll give you two of the ways, but one of the ways in which wine gladdens the heart is the intoxicating nature of wine. The intoxicating nature of wine. Wine lifts the spirit and gladdens the heart long before it actually overtakes you and makes you drunk. Long before, much long before, it overtakes you and makes you drunk. Wine and, and I'm not sure you're coding none of this, and its effects, the effects of wine, the lifting up of the soul and the, and your enjoyment can be enjoyed without you losing control and you becoming drunk. It can happen. In fact, this is what we see in Scripture. Proverbs 31, 6-7 encourages Lemuel to give wine and strong drink to the sick and sorrowful of heart. Those who are in sorrow, his command to give them wine. In Jeremiah 16, 7-8, it speaks of wine as the cup of consolation for those who are mourning one's death. Those who are in agony over one dying, it says, give them wine. Cheer their heart. We see in scripture that wine is a blessing that reflects the goodness of God, which is, which also it points to, um, how wine gladdens the heart. Because when you drink wine in those days, it shows that the harvest has come. God has blessed you. Jeremiah 31, 12 through 14, but, but this, uh, verse 12 here. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, and over the young of the flock of the herd. Genesis 27 to 28, 28. Now may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and of abundance of grain and new wine. New wine is not grape juice. New wine is wine. Deuteronomy 7 verses 12 through 13. Then it shall keep, then it shall come about because you listen to these judgments and you keep and do them that the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness, which he swore to your forefathers. What happens if you keep the covenant with God? And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd and of the young of your flock. That is a blessing from God, wine. 
Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 14. It shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today to love your God and to serve him with all your heart and soul, that he will give you rain for your land in its season, the early late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. Notice, saints, that wine here represents the goodness of God. It represents the goodness of God. But also, we see in Scripture that the removal of wine represents the curse of God. Isn't that interesting? Something that we have grown up thinking, alcohol itself, not all of you, I'm sorry, some of us, thinking that alcohol is a sin, God says here, it's a blessing if you obey me. And then also, it's a curse if you disobey me. I will remove the wine. Deuteronomy 8, 28-15, we read of a list of curses from God to his people. And in verse 29, we read of one of the curses is this, that you shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall devour them. You can read also this in Isaiah 62.8. All this to say that wine has deep symbolism in it. It represents the goodness of God. Something that God has given to us to gladden the heart. But also we see that when wine is removed, it is a curse of God. It is a curse from God. Now, lastly, not only does wine represent the goodness of God, God's favor upon us, but also wine represents the coming of Christ. Wine represents the coming of of Jesus Christ. Genesis 49. We have Jacob prophesying over his sons. Uh, specifically, Judah in verse 8. It says, As for you, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, as a lion who dares to stir him up. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of his peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice of the vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. This is a prophecy that Jacob gives to Judah. It's ultimately about Jesus Christ. This, this one who's a cub, who's like a lion laying down, who's going to stir him up. The scepter that Judah will have, his robes dripping with wine. Who's he talking about? He's pointing forward to Jesus Christ. And saints, this here, you have to get this. This here, this prophecy to Judah is one of the main eschatological themes of the Old Testament. So when the prophets were writing about the future, and of the Messiah that will come. They were looking to Judah and the promise that was given to him and the prophecy given to him 
of a scepter, of a lion, of wine, an abundance of wine. They're looking for that. How do I know that? Amos chapter 9 verses 14 to 15. I will also restore the uh, fortunes of my people Israel. And they will rebuild the desolate cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine. And I will make gardens and eat their fruit. We see also as Amos is looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, he sees in the future for God's people having a vineyard, drinking wine, an abundance of wine. That this is what the Messiah will bring to God's people. Amos is harkening back to Genesis 49. Joel 2. Then the Lord will be jealous for his land and will compassion for his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, I'm going to send you grain, new wine and oil. And you will be satisfied and full with them. And I will never again make you a disgrace among the nations. Then he says in verse 24, the threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Not just wine in a cup, an abundance of wine. Again, we see wine here being used as a symbol of redemption. A symbol of redemption. Zechariah 8.12 For there will be a seed of peace. The vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce. And the heavens will provide their due. And I will give to the remnant of his people all these things as an inheritance. Hosea chapter 2, verses 18 to 23. On that day also I make a covenant for them with the animals of the field, the birds of the sky, and the crawling things on the ground. And I will eliminate the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will uh, let them lie down in safety. I will betroth you forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in favor and compassion, in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. It will come about on that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine and to the oil. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. What is the testimony of saying you are my God and you are my people? It is wine, an abundance of wine. All the Old Testament prophets were, and saints, they were looking for this. Every single instance that you have a prophecy of the future, wine is integrated in that prophecy of what will happen in the future. Saints, over and over again, the Old Testament associates wine with the coming redemption of God's people. But not just wine in general, but in abundance, the fullness of wine, and we will drink and we will be full. It's one who will come and give God's people that which was promised and prophesied to Judah. And saints, as we come to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, 
Do you remember what Christ's first miracle was? Do you remember the first miracle of Christ? It wasn't healing a dead man and rising him from the dead. It wasn't taking the blind and making them see again. It wasn't taking the cripple and making them walk again. But it was this. On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan, Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were uh, invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, What business do you have with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the serpents, Whatever he tells you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots standing there from the Jewish custom of purification containing two or three measures each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. Now when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and he did not know where it came from, the head waiter called the groom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the guests were drunk, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning is of uh, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Galilee of uh, Canaan of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. What's the connection between the prophecy of the Old Testament, the promise that was given, the prophecy that was given to Judah, and every single one <coughs> looking forward to this one who's going to come? And not just with a scepter, but one who's going to come with an abundance of wine, whose robes are dripping with wine. Is it out of coincidence then that the first miracle that Christ does is turning water into wine? Is it out of sheer luck that he just happened to be at a wedding, that they ran out of wine, he happens to be there, and he has the ability to turn water into wine? It's not out of sheer coincidence. It's not out of sheer luck. But there is a reason why the first miracle that Jesus ever did was turning water into wine. Because what he was doing there, saints, is when Christ turned water into wine, he was visibly showing people and he was reminding people of all of the promises in the Old Testament of when God's people are restored, there will be an abundance of wine. That's what he was doing. He was reminding people of the prophecy of Judah. He was reminding people of what Amos said. He was reminding people of what Zechariah said. He was reminding people what Isaiah said. He was reminding people of their Old Testament. That one of the signs of God's redemption is wine, an abundance of wine, And what does he do? He turns water into wine at a wedding. None of you have ever had a wedding bigger than a Jewish wedding. They were massive. And Jesus Christ steps on the scene. And his first miracle, he shows that I am the one that was prophesied of in Genesis 49. I am the one with the scepter. I am not the cub, but the lion of the tribe of Judah. From me, wine comes dripping from my garments. 
I will bring the abundance of wine. Again, the sign of redemption was to be wine. And here Christ reminds people of that sign. Jesus steps on the scene and shows forth his glory. Isn't that interesting too? That this miracle, we think, oh, he just turned water into wine. He was being a good, you know, a good son, trying to help the party. It showed forth his glory. That he is the promised Messiah. It's not by accident. But Christ was signaling to his people that the promise of redemption that ran through the Old Testament is here in the flesh. It's here in the God-man, Jesus Christ. So saints, when you drink next week, when you see the wine, think of Christ. Think of the promises of, of the Old Testament has now been fulfilled in Christ. And you, all of the prophecies in the Old Testament of the nation being restored, and one of the signs is going to be an abundance of wine. You are partakers of that. Because you are spiritual Israel. You are God's holy nation. You are God's holy people. And because so, he gives to you the best of the fruit of the vine. He gives to you wine in abundance. What is this wine? It is the blood of Christ. In fact, isn't that what Christ says? Isn't that what, he, what, what the cup symbolizes in the Lord's Supper? That this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. That this abundance of wine, that this wine is going to fill the tummies of a multitude of people. A number that no one can count. The wine is not just saints filling us in our bellies, but it's us being spiritually nourished. As we, again, are partakers of that promise that was given to all the Old Testament saints and the people of Israel. So saints, wine is a joy. Remove just merely the effects, but also what it says about God's promises to you, that he has kept his covenant that Christ has come, he has lived, died, and rose for us, and the cup symbolizes the abundance of wine that we now drink of. I hope you saw this evening, this afternoon, and I hope that I have simply put, taken a sword and dismantled many of your traditions, many of the ways in which you thought of alcohol now, of course, there are um, wisdom, great wisdom, when it comes to drinking alcohol. From a recreational standpoint, remember I said that we have a liberty of conscience. So how can I say I have a liberty of conscience? And you say, my conscience tells me I can't drink wine, so I can't take the supper. <clears throat> well, saints, we're going to see next week that your liberty of conscience is valid when it pertains to how you live your life. But it's invalid when it pertains to the worshiping of God. When it comes to the worship of God, your conscience means nothing. But what God says and prescribes, it means everything. Let's pray.